This January, the Sultan U.S. Capitol that attempted to overturn the U.S. election put in a, in great relief, the need not to take, a grant, take for granted fair elections and a peaceful transition of power. There is now a new president, but the elements behind the January 6th attack potentially remain. Previously on this podcast, we've talked about the facets that are uh, facets of fascism even present throughout American history. This is not, uh, while it in some respects is new, it is not a brand new experience. We haven't discussed the history of people and movements that have resisted those fascist elements. Taking democracy for granted is the kind of thing that we are trying not to do. And now there's a new book, The U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader. We're joined today by the co-editors of the volume, Bill Mullen, Professor of American Studies at Purdue, and Christopher Viles, Professor and Director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut in stores. Thank you both to you for being here. Do you prefer Bill or Professor, Professor Mullen? (laughs) Bill, all the time. And welcome to you, Professor Viles, as well. Just Chris. Thank you for having me. Chris and Bill, thanks for being here. First thing I want to do is is I've got a beef. My beef is with your title. How can and I'm gonna I'm gonna pursue that beef and we'll never get over it and you'll never forgive me. And vice versa. No. But the uh, but tell tell me about start with you, Bill. Tell me about the tell me about the title. Well, we wanted to talk about two things in this book. One is the specific tendency in the United States towards fascism at different periods. And we mean by fascism, people aligning themselves with explicitly fascist political thinking, strategies, uh, and tactics. We also wanted to talk specifically about people who stand in opposition to those specific ideas strategies and tactics, meaning anti-fascist. Fascism is a particular politics. Um, In the book, we define it as a kind of very reactionary mode of government motivated by a desire for mythic renewal of the nation and ideas about the heartland and oftentimes affiliated with hyper-nationalism, racial supremacy and scapegoating of, of others. And so we felt it was important to put underline the term fascism, partly to remind people that um, in the United States, we have a tendency tendency to forget um, that there has been at different periods, particularly in the 1930s, real life fascist movements in this country. So to some extent, we were trying to overcome the forgetting of both the fascist tendencies in the US and the long glorious history of people opposing it. Both of them, in our opinion, have been overlooked, neglected, and uh, and it was time to recover them, especially in the face of the rise of Trumpism and the far right. It might be a little pedantic or picayune by, uh, by me, and I've, I'm a little bit of a dog with a bone on it, and we won't dwell only on this, but I will ask Chris, why not the pro-democracy reader? Not as fun, not as many people read it, and it doesn't call out the word fascism? Uh, I think it's just it's not as specific, right? You know, there's a lot of things that are pro-democracy, right? But I think what anti-fascism usually means, it, it evokes a very specific tradition, right? A very specific strand of uh, the left. And what that strand is, for the most part, is 
folks who um, see this thing called fascism as a clear and present danger and devote a significant, a significant amount of their time and energy and resources into stopping it. So when you say an anti-fascist, you know, you're gonna, you might be for kind of racial justice and for democracy and for unions or whatever, but you're gonna see this word fascism and this thing fascism and as a clear and present danger that you're gonna use to unite all of those things into one struggle moving forward, right? And so it's a really- And you want, and you want anti-fascist, your argument is that anti-fascist should be the umbrella term for all of that stuff? No, 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 not at all. Not, not in all times, I'm just saying, um, in the 30s, it was. In the 1930s, it was the umbrella term for a lot of people on the left in the, in the 40s, too, for obvious reasons. But I'm not saying that anti-fascism should always be the, the rubric for like naming all kinds of struggles for social justice. All I'm saying is that if you're an anti-fascist, you're concentrated on a, kind of a self-defense movement against a virulent political reaction, right? And so... Um, that's, that's what the, the term anti-fascism generally means, right? It's not just about being against fascism. Most people are, even some people who, who like pretty much reproduce fascism themselves are, might see themselves as against fascism. So that's not, um, it's not, it's not just about what you think. It's also, it's more about what you do, right? It's more about your actions. It's more about your, how much this word fascism occupies in some total of your beliefs. Chris, what, talk about the history of the project. I want to go back to this because I think to say a little bit of why I'm I'm hung up on it a little bit is it seems to me that the propping up of the word anti-fascist and then and then its derivative uh, antifa or antifa is has been as effective a tool by rhetoricians uh, who are uh, low-key supporting low-key fascism. Uh, as otherwise, and that adopting that frame and that language has consequences. And it seems that those consequences, and some would argue those consequences borne out in the uh, in there being a defeat, but not a, a landslide repudiation of the previous president of the United States, Donald Trump, that propping up fascism versus anti-fascism and making them even somewhat equivalent in the public debate itself is giving more credence, particularly when one can define the uh, anti-fascist or show a picture of the anti-fascist as someone who themselves seems like a fringe member of society rather than in the mainstream. And so that's one of the things I'm trying to wrestle with. Maybe you, I was going to ask you a question about the origin of the project, but maybe just respond to, to that. Tell me where I'm, what I'm missing. Well, no, you know, I don't think you're missing anything necessarily, but I, one of the things that we stress is that nowadays there's this term Antifa that gets thrown around a lot, right? And Antifa is a very specific moment and a specific movement within a larger anti-fascist tradition. So not everybody who is anti-fascist, like, so our reader is really um, composed of contributions from writers who've been operating in social movements from the 1930s to the present, right? Um, from, you know, folks in the Communist Party in the 30s to Mark Bray, um, just, you know, you know, a couple of years ago. So we're, but Antifa is a specific movement that kind of came out of Europe, mostly in the 90s. That I remember in being in Germany when I lived there, you could see Antifa sprayed on the wall in the 1990s. And it was a kind of a punk rock subculture that was explicitly devoted to like fighting Nazis in the streets, neo-Nazis in the streets, because that movement was ascended at the time. 
right? So that's a that's a specific historical incarnation of a longer anti-fascist tradition. But you know, if you go back to the 30s and 40s, it wasn't necessary. Anti-fascism wasn't necessarily grounded in some kind of alternative look or bohemian look necessarily. It wasn't a subculture. Um, it was more of a kind of a form of politics. And you know, the same in the 50s, um, 1960s, it was the Black Panthers who were the main uh, carriers of an anti-fascist tradition. So again, anti and Antifa is a really specific historical incarnation of anti-fascism that's relatively recent within a hundred year history. Has there been an example of an anti-fascist, well, put, no, the answer to that question is clearly yes. Um, well, I'll put it in this context. I went to a protest uh, some months ago and a, and a youngish white male uh, surrounded uh, you know, by three or four other youngish white males yelled, if you're anti-fascist, come with me. And call people, I didn't interview everybody who did this. So I was like, oh, maybe, well, I'm anti-fascist. So I should come with them. And they went over and then uh, what they did was activity that would not have been chosen by or selected by or advised or even approved of or nodded at by the people who had organized that protest. Uh, and, and so now I see the anti-fascist reader. No, take me out of it. My dad sees the anti-fascist reader. My dad, who was on the, uh, the steps to hear Martin Luther King Jr. give the I Have a Dream speech. My dad, who has been at just about every major protest in my town you know, over the last 45 years, who was, who was saying throughout the election, these people weren't paying attention when Hubert Humphrey was running against Richard Nixon. They weren't paying attention to 1968. They haven't, they don't understand that what is happening right now is they are playing into the hands of oligarchic regimes and plutocratic regimes and oppressive regimes by giving them an easy uh, telegenic target. And so he sees anti-fascist readers and says, this is the wrong frame. What do I tell my dad? I think you should tell your, your dad that fascism is the enemy, not anti-fascism. I mean, your show's about democracy. Yeah. Uh, one thing we know about fascism, it hates democracy. I mean, its primary, its primary purpose is to crush it. So if your dad's a Democrat or a pro-democracy guy, he should feel afraid of what fascism historically has represented. This is the argument we had. I, I took your part of this argument for a year and a half. This is the argument we had at, on the air. I do a show called News with My Dad, where I talk about the news with my dad. That's why it's called that. And this was exactly the argument we had on a regular basis. Dad, that's not, the, somebody spray painting downtown, that's not the problem. Fascism is the problem. Is there any responsibility by pro-democracy forces or fo forces that are against fascism to frame our movement in ways that will be persuasive over time? Or how do I... And how do we untangle? Maybe we're not in any rhetorical challenge right now. Maybe everything's proceeding according to a plan for people who want to fight oppression in the world. Uh, so say that. But how, other than saying, dad, don't care about that. Uh, is there anything else I tell him? Or is there anything else that we do to sort of untangle the rhetorical challenge that I have so untangled, so tangled up in my brain, I'm not even communicating it well here? Well, I think the, the thing maybe to, to tell your dad, sorry to keep framing it that way, is uh, to, you know, 
keep in mind the the folks who are like dressed in black and the face mask and you know you know might show up with you know the like weapons or not um pepper spray what have you um that's more kind of like the shock troops of a larger anti-fascist movement those are the most visible folks and yeah sure we could we could debate optics i mean they would say like yeah we need to protect our identities all that kind of stuff you know i've, I've had even unitarian liberals here in new england say oh when i look at them on the news they look like isis right so i agree the optics the the look is not a good one that's going to really uh, win over a lot of people but i think it's incumbent on us to really to say okay well whatever their look is, I mean, there is a need to kind of confront fascists in the street physically, but also, you know, to stress that that's not the sum total of anti-fascism. You know, this anti-fascist, anti-fascism is, again, it's, it's, a, it's an activity that is designed to stop fascism. That could be physically fighting Nazis in the streets. That could be having conversations like this. That could be educating people on fascism. And I mean, Bill and I were part of this group called the Campus Anti-Fascist Network. And our scope was more limited. I'm not saying we're better than you know Antifa or something like this. I'm just saying that our goal was more kind of education. We were on university campuses. And so we would have um, educational uh, like sessions basically and speakers and events and conversations to educate people in the history of fascism and also you know get people out to oppose right-wing speakers you know whether they're clad in uniform or not I mean actually most all, all the people we got to like show up to kind of protest right-wing speakers um, and uh, and all of that were were not uniformed in that look whatsoever in fact no one with that that look was uh, around so all I'm saying is that I think I think the thing to stress is that at best, like the, the folks dressed in black are like kind of the, the shock troops of, or the, the Antifa army, rather than actually the sum total of um, anti-fascism. Yeah, we're measured by the army to some degree. No, it's uh, true. They're the most and, visible. Right. And, and, the, and, and ultimately protests, like, why do we protest? Why do we write books and why do we title things? And, I, and you know, judging a book by the cover would be an almost ironic some total the procedure of this conversation. So I, I, I also want to move past it. But even the debate that um, as Bernie Sanders was running for president, the question that, that I raised that I debated, you know, with my, you know, again, with my dad on air was, uh, um, was will, will Bernie Sanders embracing of the word socialist advance the cause because it'll make that feel um, more comfortable for people to say outside their face Will it sort of de uh, sort of defang that word, or will it uh, color any number of ideas that lots of people would like, uh, and that would be way better for the vast majority of people by applying to it a term that has been defined by the enemies of those very things? And so, while it's to some degree, you know, all of this is semantic when we're talking about human communication. Uh, I guess it is the exercise in semantics, it is the exercise in how we're going to communicate with other people's brains and our choices of words matter. So I, I forgive me for sort of dwelling on it, but but I, I was stuck on the cover. But uh, Bill, you were wanting to say something. Um, yeah, you mentioned Martin Luther King. I, I guess, you know, most people who listen to this show are probably fans. You know, in 1968, after, you know, this, he'd seen all these black neighborhoods being um, attacked by police in the United States and Richard Nixon was calling for a law and order government. He said, you know, we better fight for democracy hard or we're gonna end up uh, with fascism. That's how, that's how organic 
the idea of anti-fascism is. It means a, the perception that democracy is slipping away, particularly if you're in an oppressed group, like an African-American or a gay or lesbian or a Jew or a Muslim, who has historically has been the target of people who call themselves fascists, right? I mean, we talk about in our book, you know, back in the 40s and the 50s, Albert Einstein was an anti-fascist. Humphrey Bogart was an anti-fascist. It was kind of common sense to understand that Hitler and Mussolini, right, and Franco were a threat to ordinary people. Um, we want to revive that tradition. We want to look around, like, I'll give you a good example of how it, it has been revived. After Charlottesville, right, where we saw open fascist people in fascist parties like <clears throat> um, American Vanguard, you know, the guy who ran down Heather Heyer with her car, um, it was pretty clear that those people were willing to take innocent lives to build a hard right authoritarian racist state in, in this country. And a week later, a small group of white supremacists tried to march in Boston. And you might remember it. 50,000 people showed up in Boston and they were not Antifa. They were like people probably like your dad, probably like my dad, probably like, you know, the people that live around the corner from your studio. These were just ordinary people who finally saw kind of the light bulb went off when they saw Heather Heyer get murdered and they said, well, this is a serious game these people are playing. Yeah, uh, They're coming for us next. Yeah. That's what anti-fascism is too, right? It's that sense that you better be aware that your fellow person, woman, Jew, Muslim, black, um, may be the next in line. And that's, I think, also what our book is about, yeah. celebrating that tradition. Yeah, and, and uh, understating the threat of the risk of fascism, even understating its, uh, the strands of it within American history, uh, the taking it as a serious thing, I'll pile on to all that uh, and, and appreciate it, and also appreciate this conversation. The, I'll, I'll even endorse the, the King conversation. And I am also interested in the order in which he said it. He did not say, if you want to fight fascism, you better be in favor of democracy. He started out with, if you better fight for democracy, otherwise you're going to get fascism. And so that's why I find it interesting that when we, when we start, when we have as our first foot of anti-fascism, the thing we are against as the big dream, as the headline, as the name of our protest, as the cover of our uh, treatise, that's a, it's an important choice. And I'm fascinated by that mm -hmm. choice, uh, not, it, it, as distinct from giving people a vision of what they want in the world, instead of identifying ourselves by our enemy. Yeah, I think even some of the people in the tradition came to that conclusion too. The the biggest um, anti-fascist organization in the 30s, probably in U.S. history, is this umbrella coalition called the American League Against War and Fascism. In 1938, changed its name to the American League for Peace and Democracy. Right. So it seems like it seems like people on the left have been having this discussion, you know, for almost a hundred years. You know, I wonder if my dad was in the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's talk about let's talk about the origin of the book. When did you decide this was the book that needed to get written? Was it was it just prior to the 2016 election? After the 2016 election? Go ahead, Chris. Bill. Why don't you why don't you take a crack? 
Um, well, honestly, this work builds on on some work like you know Chris has written a really great book about called Haunted by Hitler, which came out about what five years ago, Chris. 2014 during Obama, yeah. Yeah, which was really trying to identify this tradition of, of American anti-fascism. And he and I started working together, I guess in 2017, um, after around the time of Charlottesville, when we helped form this campus anti-fascist network, which grew into you know really more than a thousand scholars and students across the country who were concerned that you know the far right and neo-Nazis like Richard Spencer were trying to speak on campuses and we thought it would be good to oppose that. So those two things I think brought us into conversation. Uh, and then I think it was our shared perception that the world was moving, was, be, was moving in very polarized directions around, around the world. You saw far left parties and far right parties kind of rising simultaneously this was, I think, related to the economic, you know, catastrophes that have hit the world, especially since 2007. And you started to see people, uh, traditional parties losing their grip, um, like in, you know, in, in England, like the Labour Party and the Tories. Suddenly you had kind of far right, you know, groupings um, rising into public consciousness, just as in the United States, you know, we had the Tea Party movement about 10 years ago, which kind of showed you that even the Republican Party, the traditional party, was kind of like in question for some people. So we felt, I think, that this, this trajectory that we were seeing, especially of polarization and the appeal of far-right politics globally, probably needed to be addressed. And we hoped that the book would be a way to give people some tools to understand the history of fascism, but also to maybe um, organize wherever they were to, to resist it. That would be something I would say. I don't know if Chris wants to add something. Chris, feel free to pile on or, or also it prompts maybe this question. You start the five parts of the book. The first part begins with US anti-fascism uh, in the time of dictators. And your initial year is 1932. Uh, 1932, it's some degree, almost an obvious year, you know, within a year or two of what a lot of people think is an obvious year is the rise of kind of official fascism in Europe. Uh, why not before 1932? How come 1932 was your was your start? Well, yeah, it's, it's a, it, I mean, you've, you've got a point. I mean, really, the, the first fascist party in the world is founded in um, 1921, um, the PNF, that's Mussolini's party. And so, you know, there, there are some historians have debated. Yes, there was. There probably were. We we could probably name some things that are pretty much the equivalent of fascist movements before 1921. But we didn't want to kind of go there and start naming things fascism before fascism as a term existed. But that said, yeah, I mean, fascism was alive and well in the 20s. United States, the the largest fascist movement that was a kind of a no-brainer fascist movement in the 20s was the the KKK, the second. The, "Quote unquote second Ku Klux Klan, um, which was a mass movement, which was getting people elected to office, which was a really a force to be reckoned with, including I believe it was the governor of, of Oregon was in the was in the Klan in the twenties too." Um, well, we have a, we case, have a deep we have a deep Klan tradition in the state. We had I, I, did we only have one Klan governor? I mean, we had the, the Klan had real power in Oregon. 
Yeah, I mean, it was in Maine. It was in all kinds of places, you know, outside the South Indiana was the hotbed, really. But, um, you know, and so, yeah, the, it existed. But I think we, we, we really start with the 30s because the left, when, when, it, when fascism was just something that was in Italy, the left didn't really take it all that seriously. And, you know, uh, there were some, there's a lot of folks who, you know, in fact, in the business press on the right, who were, loved Mussolini, but no one really saw it as some global thing that was a problem. It's only when um, Hitler comes to power really in 1933 um, that, um, you know, like it starts to be identified by the left more broadly as a uh, as a, a really global problem we need to deal with because once Germany does it, it's like okay the entire country just fought Germany in a big war as a major industrial power. It was it was really and and the virulence of the anti-Semitism um, that was much more obvious in Germany too, right? So you know the left started talking a lot more about fascism in the 30s mainly because of Hitler because it wasn't just an Italian thing, but it became a, a much wider thing. It, it was clear that it had legs. So you had mentioned the Tea Party. The I am the mob was trending when Nancy Pelosi referred to the Tea Party as the mob. The the interchange ten years after they became an actual mob, uh, hunting for hunting for Pelosi in the Capitol. Uh, the uh, and I am. I mean, so much of that example you gave, I'm so stuck on it, 1930, of how do we characterize our thing? What are the flags around which we unite? What is the, what is the, if this is a, if this is a, if this is an info war that is happening and we are trying to have truth, whatever, however we feel about any number of things, trying to have truth win and have compassion win, bend the arc of history towards justice. If we want that to win, what is the rhetorical architecture that must be built to improve the odds of that winning? I remain fascinated by that question. Uh, and are there are there other turns of rhetoric, other choices of words? It's setting aside the title, I'm not even there at this point. Uh, but the uh, that turns of phrase, Bill, that you came across that helped in any of these in any of these eras that helped marshal support, that helped like the rhetoric that was used that really did seem to. Uh, change the direction of the conversation you know hashtag i'm the mob okay i'm the mob i'm gonna go do some stuff now but instead say we are blank and that had an impact has language been an important focus of anti-fascist work in the past yeah i think so um in the 1930s the the left decided to use the term uh, united front to describe what the fight against fascism should look like and the idea was you could be a woman, you could be a man, you could be black, white, gay, straight, um, but as long as you were against fascism, you could be part of that united front. And I think it was an important term to kind of democratize the fight against fascism itself. It was yeah. a very effective term. In the, in the England in the 1970s, you had a real open subculture associating itself with Nazism. I mean, you had people walking around London with, you know, swastikas on their armbands and the Socialist Workers Party and some other left groups started a group called the Anti-Nazi League. And the, the idea of a league was kind of cool. Sounds like a, a professional sport you might be playing, right. right? And they had really simple logos. They, they started to have like concerts to fight fascism. They, called, they, they started a, a, something, a group called Rock Against Racism. 
And they had big concerts in public parks with bands like The Clash, right? Hugely popular rock bands. Those terms were really effective, important ways of naming what you were fighting. But like rock against racism, which is also kind of poetic, right? Uh, you start bringing in, you know, high profile uh, people. You suddenly have people kind of grooving to the idea, right? That it's kind of cool, not just cool, but it's like important to be part of a, of a movement against yeah. against the right wing. So those are just a couple of examples I can think of. <laughs> Chris, other examples of in, in any of these five areas, maybe of either language or strategy that seem particularly apt, particularly effective that activists might learn from today in these areas that seem particularly effective for fighting fascism? Yeah, I mean, I think the the I mean, this this goes back to your your earlier point. It, I, I found at least locally here in Connecticut, um, organizing under the banner of anti-fascism is locally um, is only effective really if there's a palpable local threat, right, um, of fascism, right, and so in Connecticut, we had moments, right? But it, it wasn't some sustained kind of fascist presence in rural Connecticut where I'm at. So it was, it's, folks started kind of organizing in kind of various anti-racist campaigns. You know, I, with others that started a, um, with a colleague here, uh, Kathleen Tonry, had started a group called the uh, the Neighbor Fund, a, you know, a, a, a nonprofit for legal de and deportation defense for immigrant, for uh, undocumented folks. And for me, that was the most, and the most effective anti-fascist thing I could be doing at that moment, right? Um, and so it really, rather than like go and fight like Nazis in the street that doesn't really exist in my area anyway, um, we're not in Portland where they actually come to us and converge, right? I mean, I think that's, it makes, that makes maybe a little bit more sense where you're at. Um, but uh, in any case, so, so it, it doesn't always make sense to fight under the banner of anti-fascism, right? It doesn't. And I'll say, even as the author of the U.S. and the co-editor of this, I'll, I'll say that. Um, but that said, um, when there is, when do people do agree that there is something called fascism that they need to confront directly and they do need to do it in large numbers, a kind of um, non-sectarian popular front, I think, is the best. I mean, you know, we might... Uh, folks on the various folks on the left will definitely disagree on that. But the organization I mentioned before, the American League Against War and Fascism, they were it was put in motion by the U.S. Communist Party, but it was mostly not communist on the board, and it was a true umbrella organization that coordinated the activities or tried to coordinate the activities of about a, like thousands of groups, including the NAACP, the Urban League, um, you know, the, um, the ACLU, all of these folks were signatories. And, you know, and they had, you know, they had their own events, but they also tried to get other folks out to other events, sometimes with great success. And so a kind of a large, um, a large, what, what's very bad, and I think the German example is, that, uh, is, is critical here, the infamous example, is the Communist Party and the Socialist Party fighting each other up until 1932? Even the Communist Party, like party line, is basically to say, you know, the best way to fight fascism is to go against the Social Democrats, the Socialists, because they're implicitly helping fascism, right? So, like, in other words, 
sectarianism on the left, you, ha you have to have a program that everybody can kind of get on board with without watering it down so that everybody goes home, right? And that's the tricky spot, right? That's the, tr I mean, so you, you need a platform. That's the tricky spot. That's the thing, That, that right? is the tricky spot, right? Um, so you need a broad enough platform, but but one that's not so broad that, you know, no one's excited about it. Yeah, so. and, and, and to somebody who's trying to build a 60% consensus in a nation so that democracy can win uh, over time. How, how, do you, how do you make sure that the people who want to advance that the most stridently aren't set aside? And how do you make sure the people who most see a priority of having something that, you know, to, to use Bill, your term, people around the corner from the studio would join in on, that they don't seem like the sellout, you know, weak sauce types that shouldn't be trusted and shouldn't be listened to. I mean, that's, a, that's an ongoing sort of discussion that I remain interested in. Uh, but and we can dwell on that if you so choose. I'm happy to, but, and you might even have lessons around it. Well, okay, I'll keep it on history. Bill, any examples in history of other, you know, you mentioned King, of course, uh, any other examples where somebody seemed to thread that needle of a challenge, where it seemed to say, we're going we're gonna to be uh, a movement based in morality, not based merely in uh, political analysis and, and, and strategy, but based on morality and, and core objectives, that we are going to have an eye to how we actually win. It's going to be strategic while based and rooted in morality, uh, and that ultimately had effectiveness and didn't just crumble apart. Any examples that you look to that you think uh, might not be as obvious, but that inspire you or that you hope might inspire your readers? Well, I can think of two. They're, they're really different. And I'm not sure if these would be considered like uh, popular mainstream kinds of... Um, no, the weird stuff's good. Organizations. And I guess one thing we should say is we're kind of lucky in the United States that so far we haven't had an openly fascist state so that everybody hasn't had to become an anti-fascist yet. So yeah. typically, I think people with the, the biggest antenna about fascism have been people most vulnerable to it, like socialists and communists, uh, people of color, um, Jews, who kind of know that they're sort of first targets. But in the late 19, for about 11 years in the late 70s and, and, and the 80s, there was something called the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee. Now, this is a kind of a wide group of people across the United States. There were chapters in cities from Colorado to New York. And they chose the name of John Brown because John Brown was the famous abolitionist, right, who ended up trying to free slaves, actually yeah. in a very militant direct action fashion. And they, they want a lot of people to the idea that John Brown was actually somebody that you should hit your star to, right? He was one of the first real freedom fighters in the United States, um, who obviously saw himself as, you know, uh, directly threatened by the institution of slavery, not to mention all of the African-Americans, you know, he was trying to set free. That would be one example. Um, Chris mentioned, you know, the, the I mentioned the Anti-Nazi League in, in England in the 70s, which actually had very, very wide appeal and was very successful, actually turned the Nazis and the fascist movement kind of on its ear in England. I mean, it really did. It drove people underground and out. Uh, that was, in my mind, a success. I think in the 30s, um, the, the United Front, Popular Front slogans that you heard frequently. Um, here, here's one thing I think it's important about the language of fighting fascism. I, you know, it, you, it, it's a front 
or a league or unity. What people are trying to do is, is choose terms that allow people to say, we're going to come together, we're going to fight together, but we're going to feel safer. You know, we're going to be in league with each other. And that's really important because fascism is a violent, dangerous political project. It really does want to kill you, you know? And so I think some of those terms that we've been discussing have been important to making people feel unity and solidarity with each other as they kind of have to stand up in the street. It's kind of scary if you've ever confronted fascists or Nazis and a public And that's street. the tool. The tool, the tool of fascism right? is fear. The tool exactly. Hannah Arendt yeah. made the made the case and that, that yeah. if you can keep if you can have the the carrot of you know I don't know identity and the stick of fear of challenging the uh, the organized fascist regime then uh, th that fear can be a motivating tool and so this is and so people who help confront that fear and help manage that fear without allowing the rhetoric to be weaponized this is I, uh, again I remain fascinated by the discussion I think it's a I think it's a really important one uh, Chris any other from you lessons as you've seen people who have worked to fight fascism effectively, uh, that uh, it, lessons of either pitfalls, people who didn't do it because they were too mealy-mouthed, they're too worried about what they would look like in the country club, or too worried they'd be playing in the hands of their of their ideological enemies and therefore fed into their, fed into their hands, uh, or examples of people who really did it well that we haven't already gone over that inspire you the most or maybe inspire your readers the most. Yeah, I mean, I, it, that's a good question. I mean, it, it really depends on the, the the threat that you're facing, right, and, and the nature of it, right. So, and when you, when uh, Bill was talking about, um, you know, the the British example, and I think this is really common in Europe. It's it, for most American cities, they're, they're, I'm I'm increasingly important, uh, increasingly drawn to the idea that space in the United States. Um, impacts the way that we do these fights. We, most of us don't live in walking cities. It's a very car-driven environment. And yeah. so, you know, I had friends in Britain and, you know, a friend in, in um, you know, from who grew up in London in the early 80s. And, and he said, you know, as a person of color too, people would, you know, there was a literal th physical street threat in your neighborhood of these Nazis walking around, right? And, you know, because of segregation, people in the United States, people are living in very different neighborhoods. Um, but also, it's just there's not there's the protests, these mass protests in which people kind of show up, but it's not the 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 literal Proud Boys just running around beating people up. It's not um, it, it's not exactly this the the kind of same thing in the United States um, that it is in kind of Britain or you know Germany in the 30s, right? So the but it's important, and there was a point that Mark Bray made, right, that he, you know, it's one of his interview subjects, and, you know, I know we should be talking about our own book, although we do, you know, quote him a little bit, but one of his subjects in Europe had said, it's, the street fighting technique is, and the doxing technique can be very effective, and it is very effective, and I think it was very effective in Charlottesville, but the problem becomes what happens when 25% of your population starts to identify and to see themselves and to articulate themselves in a fundamentally fascist way. What happens when it's not just a fringe, but it's 25%. You can't just go street fight 25% of the entire US population, yeah. right? So it, it does have to be a broader kind of educational component. You do need your, um, I, 
you do need a wing, I think, that does do the physical confrontation. But you do have to keep in mind that we have to have these discussions. We have to have kind of our lobbying organizations. You know, and to be honest, I, to me, I think the most you know effective of the anti-fascist was the, the you know the Popular Front in the 30s. One of the the uh, they went where they went into a okay, let's make a coalition with of leftists and liberals, right, um, uh, around these five issues, right, that are that both of us can get behind. Less effective, I think, is some of the stuff that we saw, like Les Evans, who was of the, and that we quoted in, um, he had a piece called The United Front versus the Popular Front and Our Reader. And he had um, basically talked about the need for a united front, not a popular front. And a united front is where you have a bunch of different leftist groups and they unite around a leftist line um, rather than leftists align with liberals, right? You know, but I, I think that's a recipe to keep yourself extremely small. And you know, I just haven't I, I haven't seen too many historical examples of of that latter approach, the united front of just a bunch of leftist groups uniting around a leftist line, really making a massive impact. No, and and the no, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm hearing it, and and some of that is, uh, I mean, that's attempts to do that have sometimes played not only been unsuccessful, but been counter successful. Have, have helped feed into the uh, you know give the oppressive regime that is never really able to get 55 percent of support and never able to get 65 support, able to eke enough support, uh, either plurality or bare majority, uh, in order to uh, uh, in order to wield power to be even more dangerous. I want to dwell on physical confrontation. I want to go straight at it. You said that physical, there has to be a piece that is that physical confrontation piece. I'll try to make your argument. What I think your argument is, is because people need to feel safe and people need to understand what the, what's at stake. And if you're, and if you're a person who is at risk, if you're a person who is targeted, if you're a person who is uh, the, the most marginalized in society, you're, uh, you're a member of the BIPOC community, you're uh, somebody who is, you're, you've, you have ancestors who were, uh, who are at risk of or subject to genocide, uh, that you're sort of first target for a, a racist fascist. That having that having people who come together in solidarity say, "Hey, no, you can be in the street, and we will keep you safe." That that's that that's what I that I hear that that these streets are your streets. These streets are not only the streets of jackbooted thugs who are trying to who are trying to make you scared. If I if I stated the argument, what did I miss in trying to state state the the argument I think you're making? Nothing. I mean, I, I think you know that 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 whole thing about um, security, right, at, at protests. That's not that's not new. Um, you know, I was told by a guy who was from the '60s, a, a, a guy that um, Bill and I know, Alan Wald, that they used to have what they called flying brigades, right? And that was from the you know earlier in the 20th century. Flying brigades would basically be you know, some people who were in the march who would kind of keep order and who would, you know, if there was trouble, they would congeal in a spot with, you know, and could fight and et cetera, right? So that's not new. I mean, it, and it predates Antifa. And also there was the, uh, we include in the reader, um, uh, Robert Williams, Negroes with Guns, you know, he makes a case basically for an armed self-defense within civil rights. And he was explicitly, um, identifying as anti-fascist, right? And, uh, and the, you know, he would, came out of the NAACP, but he basically converted his NAACP branch in Monroe, North Carolina into what we would clearly call like an anti-fascist, you know, defense organization with guns and all this stuff, but that's not all they did. They also did, um, you know, integrationist um, activities. They desegregated pools. They did everything the civil rights 
folks did, but they did have an armed and you know component out of necessity, and they came to that conclusion. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that you always have to go there. I'm just saying like I, I think as as somebody who identifies with the anti-fascist tradition, the the armed stuff, and that it's not it's not it's not everything, but it, it's it's it unfortunately I think has to be part of the mix. No, I, I'm glad I, I should reset and say we are talking with the co-editors, uh, Bill Mullen, Professor of American Studies at Purdue and Christopher Viles, Professor and Director of American Studies at University of Connecticut in Stores. Uh, the book is The U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader. And right now we're talking about violence. Uh, right now we are talking at least about a, a physically prepared uh, quasi-military element of a potential anti-fascist movement. How is that done best? So it seems to me that the risks are, so I hear the, I hear, you know, it, it could be a topic to avoid, right? But maybe that's exactly, you know, a topic to go into. How is it done best? Uh, the, we made the pro case, the, the counter is, uh, well, it might make you, you sort of use, well, it could be bad optics. You got a bunch of people in black and, you know, there's, they're surrounded by tear gas and, and a Fox News camera is able to capture one of them, you know, like breaking a window and they say, aha, see, this justifies uh, even worse conduct. Uh, also, potentially, uh, you know, there's people in masks and who knows who's behind the mask. And it could be, in fact, people. And we know at times it has been absolutely people who are trying to marginalize the movement or discredit the movement rather than serve the movement or keep people safe. Uh, and, and then third, related to the first, or maybe both, is potentially justifying violence on behalf of or provoking violence that otherwise wouldn't have happened. Uh, how is it done best? Is it best done by bringing it out of the sun, by actually having it, uh, having training, about making it sort of an official thing and saying, hey, this is not, we're not doing this at midnight. Okay, we're, you know, it's, it's 3 p.m. We are not the people who are, we are not the, the uh, provocation brigade. We are the, you're safe near us brigade. We are, we are, uh, uh, we are the character that Patrick Swayze played uh, in Roadhouse who said, we're going to be cool. And then we're going to be cool. We're going to be nice. And then we're going to be nice. And we're going to be nice until it's time not to be nice. What's the best way to do, to use your term, I think, the physical component, Chris or Bill? Well, I think the most important thing always is to outnumber them. Hmm. Um, it, it, your best chance of winning is to have more people than they do. And that's why organizing is so important. That's why all this discussion we're having about what do you call yourselves and who do you appeal to? That's really critical. Um, if there's 50 of them and 500 of you, you're going to win no matter what. If there's 50 of them and 10 of you, you're going to probably lose no matter what. Secondly, self-defense is really part of anti-fascist training and organizing, typically. I mean, the, the Black Panther Party, which really invested itself in, in anti-fascist work in the early 70s, they called themselves the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Self-defense was in the groundwater of what they felt was necessary to do to avoid racist attacks and especially attacks from the police. Um, thirdly, you know, anti-fascists need to be aware that the police are not your friends. Um, you've seen it in Portland and we've seen it all across the country. <clears throat> Typically the, the police in this country defend fascists when they march and oftentimes end up singling out, attacking and arresting anti-fascists. Um, we also know that there's a long history of police in this country being part of fascist movements. In the 1920s, it was pretty common for cops to be in the Klan. So you really have to talk to any fascist and say, you know, I know your impulse might be, some guy's gonna punch you in the face, go get a cop. Actually, you're better off 
uh, organizing and defending yourselves. Police should be kind of like a last resort <clears throat> if you're an anti-fascist because they're really <clears throat> typically not gonna be on your side. And I think the other thing to say is um, tactics really do matter. Um, I think you know we've seen examples of people going off script in big demonstrations, small groups of people going off and maybe smashing windows or creating violence. It actually is a distraction from the actual task of defending people. Really, that's what the emphasis should be on is defending people from fascist attacks. And that requires a lot of discipline. And that's another thing that I think anti-fascism anti needs as a movement. It needs disciplined, trained, conscientious, um, thoughtful people in the movement because lack of discipline can get you in trouble with the police or it can cause you to lose your life if you're not prepared well. That's very helpful. Appreciate that take. Uh, I'm gonna change gears a little bit. Very recently, Michael Gerson, former speechwriter for George uh, W. Bush, wrote a Washington Post uh, op-ed uh, in which he said, uh, Trumpism is American fascism. Uh, you agree with Gerson? Is, is Trump a true fascist, more fascist light, or more accurate to say that he hollowed out American democracy? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Um, I'd say more or less, yes. I mean, there. I think in the, 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 what we say in the introduction is, is it's not crazy to use the F word for, for Trump. Um, and that said, keeping in mind that he never created a fascist state, right? Um, the various, you know, we, we never really became a, um, you know, a fascist regime in the United States. He wasn't able to do that for various reasons. He, I don't even think he had the skill set to do that. Um, he didn't uh, kind of coordinate a, an actively, he didn't coordinate a fascist movement in a way that was um, identifiable by the standards of the past, but he did have what we might call what uh, fascist personality. He used a kind of a fascist rhetoric. I mean, if you study fascism and if you look at these movements over time, whether in the United States or elsewhere, in his rhetoric, you do notice that there is certain flags, right? There's this rhetoric of nation, race, action, violence, apocalyptic stakes, black and white, um, you know, the agency behind it is male. Um, it's all about the authority of the father, all of this kind of stuff. And it's not so much, I mean, there, Ted Cruz is loathsome, right? But if you look at a Ted Cruz speech, he uses the kind of classic kind of, he talks a lot about taxes, liberty, democracy, freedom. Language of like, even though that's a obnoxious language amongst a lot of politicians and it's overused, when, you know, Trump never even used the words freedom or democracy or liberty or all that just stuff went out the window. It was all about the fist, right? I had not just, thought, that's interesting. I had not, uh, I had not tracked how much less he used the word freedom than the than the modern, the more traditional modern right winger. I'll say, you know, we've, we've dragged Pop out of here uh, uh, or into the conversation without him being in it. In 2016, during the primary, when people did not think uh, when most people did not think Trump was going to be elected president or even win the primary at that point. Well, who Pop said, he reminded him of, and this is before my time, of course, but it was Mussolini. 
He said that's who that's who we, uh, Trump most reminded him of in in the in his rhetoric and his style and his style of government in his style of governance. And that was before a lot of people were using authoritarian to describe uh, to describe his his attempt at a project. Uh, Bill, anything you want to add or subtract? Well, I, um, yeah, I think uh, Trump had. We had, Enzo Traverso writes a really nice piece in our book, and he says, well, Trump's not a fascist in the classical sense. He's not Hitler. He's not even Mussolini. But he, he's not understandable unless you know that tradition. Hmm. So what he means is he's using some of the old tricks, appealing to white resentment. Uh, he's got white supremacist, clearly white supremacist characteristics, scapegoating immigrants, you know, that whole build the wall thing, banning Muslims. These were kind of classic fascist tactics and tropes, right? Um, on the other hand, I think it's kind of important since we're debating what January 6th meant. Yeah. He was in office for four years yeah. and it wasn't until he was on his way out that we actually saw what we were worried about four years ago. In other words, if that, if that rally had happened in January of 2017, right? As the starting point of Trump's administration, we'd probably be having a different conversation now about whether Donald Trump wanted to be a fascist or was aspiring to be one. I'll um, give you another date. I'll give you another date. And that date would have been January, let's call it January 6th, uh, 2019, um, mm. after Democrats win Congress, had, had there been a rally about Congress to try to keep Nancy Pelosi from being Speaker of the House. Uh, well, there, well, you still had the US president who was in control of the military and was going to be in control of the military for two years and was still going to be the duly elected president, then I would I would insert that date and then just rely on everything you just said. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think one more thing to say about Trump too, uh, to be successful, fascism historically has to develop the support of capital behind it. And capitalism in the United States is a little ambivalent about what it thinks about uh, fascist politics, I think. I think we, you know, we saw towards the end there, some companies, you know, kind of just distancing themselves between themselves and Trump. Um, and yet at the same time, as long as Trump stayed in his lane and continued to lower taxes and played nice with Wall Street, I actually think he was more of a profiteer than he was a politician very often. Uh, some people have compared him to Berlusconi, right? The, the recent Italian prime minister who had at oftentimes a kind of authoritarian fascist style, but was also interested in celebrity and money, which clearly Trump is too. It's not to mean he's not a serious danger. He clearly was, but I think in a certain way, we were lucky that he actually wasn't a better student of fascism. And actually, probably his own financial interest, my guess is, and the, and the interest of his class of friends, which include everybody in, in real estate, um, those things might have superseded uh, those instincts he might have had to simply implement something like an authoritarian state, which I think he, and one last thing, and Chris has made this point, Trump is not a military guy. Okay, most traditional fascist leaders come out of a military milieu. He always had a difficult time with the military internally. We saw it over and over. He dodged the draft and he kept whacking uh, decorated veterans. And I mean, you know, we saw chiefs of staff 
and leaders of the major branches of the military backing away from Trump, quite e even when he was trying to call out the National Guard, it wasn't quite clear that there was military consensus that they wanted to support him. And perhaps we're lucky too, that he wasn't better at that game. Because if he had been, again, we might be having a slightly different conversation. I don't know. So, let's, let's, play, so let's, play my, let's play multiple choice. How come we didn't become a full-on fascist state? A, we've covered some of these already. Option A, there was never an intent to do that. It was all overstated by enemies of the former president. B, a little watered down. There was sort of a lack of clarified intent. Trump wasn't sure at different times if he wanted to work with Stephen Miller to be uh, to be Mussolini or if he wanted to work with his sons to be Berlusconi and build his real estate empire. Uh, C, capital was ambivalent. They, that, that many boards of directors of Fortune 500 companies still want to be able to say democracy in their meetings and still think that democracy might be a better project for them than, uh, than, a, than a fascist regime. Uh, D, uh, military ambivalence with respect to Trump and or military uh, discipline in favor of democracy. Uh, e, I think I'm on E, maybe I'm on F, incompetence. And I'll just, just straight up, they wanted to do it, they just couldn't cut, pull it off. Uh, G, a, uh, a countervailing forces, okay, like anti-fascist forces in the, in the country, pro-democracy forces in the country. Uh, and I'll call it Z, all of the above or some combination. <laughs> I'd say Z, all of the above. <laughs> uh, but an, an important thing, I think you, some of your early ones were important too, is there is a point where philosophy matters. And Trump really didn't have much of a philosophy other than Donald Trump and his just colossal narcissism. He had themes. He was a racist. He was an authoritarian. Um, but if you look at the biographies of, say, Hitler and Mussolini, or even a lot of Latin American dictators, too, they tend to be folks who are middle class, come out of the military, have a vision of reconstructing society around the model of the army, right? And... Um, and so he didn't have a consistent plan or a consistent vision. He didn't have the discipline to make all of that work either. And as you know, Bill said, he never secured the alliance then the military. I mean, some military folks might vote for him, but voting for somebody and following them off a cliff with a coup d'etat are two different levels of support. Fair point. Right? You know, and so, you know, that, so he never was no, Chris, able that's to, one of the most important. Yeah. I haven't heard people, I haven't heard, heard anybody make that case that his, his raison d'etre was too, uh, was, was too measly. It hadn't, it hadn't been, it, he didn't have a powerful enough central purpose that was well enough articulated, had been written down that people understood. He had a red hat, but there wasn't much written below the red hat. And if you, Mary Trump's book is actually pretty good to, as a, a kind of a psychological profile of him is, is like his niece, you know, because, you know, unlike Hitler and Mussolini and a lot of Latin American dictators who came out of the military, middle class, um, and again, fascism is a middle class movement by and large, by the way, but like, in any case, th those folks, unlike him, he doesn't have, it doesn't, not that he also just didn't like the discipline, he liked the training. His job was a to be a kind of a face man for his father's real estate empire. His yeah. job was to show up when they were opening a business, like a, a building, cut some ribbons with like a kind of a snazzy blonde under his arm and then get in a limo and leave. That was yeah. his life, right? So yeah. he lacked the training 
um, to do anything like yeah. this. But but he we see so that, that goes into, it, it goes into lack of competence. Yeah, yeah. I want to add one one more. Any, more, any letters left after Z? Well, that's uh, why I did it Z, so you or, could fill in all the ones in between. There was there was a rhyme to my irrationality. I want I, I want to I think we we I want to give credit to the resistance to Donald Trump as one of the reasons he didn't succeed. Remember how many people went out to the airports, okay, to welcome Muslims into the country when he tried to ban them. I man, I th this was 15 years ago. There was 9/11. Okay, now we had a people like, again, the guy around this corner from your studio, right? Going out to the local airport to defy this kind of openly racist, xenophobic stuff, right? If you flash forward all the way to, to Charlottesville, I just mentioned the size of the protest in Boston, 50,000 people showing up at the drop of a hat, basically to say, hey, we're not gonna tolerate this. And then lastly, all this coincided with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I just want to talk about that for a minute. We know that Trump tried to, you know, stigmatize Black Lives Matter, tried to call it a terrorist movement. But according to the New York Times, 26 million people in the United States, roughly over the last couple of years, have taken part in some kind of Black Lives Matter protest. I think Black Lives Matter became a slogan that people identified with fighting Donald Trump and fighting against racism at, at the state level, and let's remember the cops work for the state, okay? That's what Black Lives Matter kept reminding us. They are the face of the state, right? So, so finally last year, we get to your town, Portland, right? We get a 50-day occupation of your city by Black Lives Matter activists, probably some anarchists, I'm guessing, right? Some working class people. Uh, then they try to, Trump tries, tries to send in the feds. Well, that's not necessarily fascism. You know, we've seen Nixon did that, Johnson did that. That's that's an old trope. You know, that's what you do when when your cities are challenging you. But they actually had to leave. Okay, I would argue that that movement did what it wanted to do. It, it held its ground against the state, and I think that made it harder for Trump. It made it harder for the courts to endorse Trump's policy. It made it made it it made capital more ambivalent. They don't like that kind of chaos. They don't want people up and down. Capitalism doesn't want Black Lives Matter protesters smashing windows on Michigan Avenue, right? They want a different kind of order. So, in a certain way, like the liberal tendencies uh, within American politics and even capitalism, I think were restraints on Trump. But I do think that that mass movement. I mean, we have to we have to really understand when we write the history of this period. Probably more people were on the streets over the last four years than maybe at any time in the history of this country. And it wasn't under the banner of anti-fascism, but a lot of the people that were on the streets were also anti-fascist. They were they were they were kind of resisting Trump became common sense for some people. Do you know what I mean? And the way we were talking about earlier. I think those things will be part of the history of this period too. And it gets back to some of where we started or maybe to some of the impetus of the book, which is encouraging intelligent, strategic, robust resistance uh, and not going blithely into the good or bad night of a potentially dangerous regime. I, um, uh, I wanna go back to history before we move forward and, 
and rap, probably have to rap pretty soon. But and by rap, I mean uh, form words and rhymes up top of a beat. No, that's not what I mean. Uh, the uh, as we look at those five pieces of history, and Bill, I'll go to you. Uh, the first period, the U.S. anti-fascism in the time of dictators, 32 to 41, anti-fascism in the state, 41 to 45, anti-fascism, anti-colonialism, and the Cold War, 46 to 62, politics of backlash and a new united front, 68 to 71, and now anti-fascism in the age of neoliberalism, uh, which I think what 70, 72 to today. Uh, the Which do you think, other than the last one, has the most... Is the most apropos, the most uh, applicable, or has the most lessons or maybe warnings uh, to today? Uh, that's a really good question. I'm just going to pick the Cold War period from 46 to whatever we said, 62. Um, one of the things that happens in that period is that the civil rights movement kind of conjoins itself to fighting against authoritarianism and it's also the period in which the left in the United States becomes really heavily targeted. I'm talking about, you know, the House on American Activities Committee, right? Um, and it's also a period in which the anti-colonial movement in the United States um, begins to think about the American state and its imperialism as parts of a longer tradition of authoritarianism. One of the documents that we quote, I'll, I'll try to make this tie more specific. One of the documents that we quote is, is, uh, is called We Charge Genocide. It was a document put together by activists and something called the Civil Rights Congress in 1951. And they present it to the United Nations and they try to use the UN definition of genocide to argue that the United States is committing genocide against black people. And the first section of the book is this enormous chronicle of police shootings and lynchings, okay? Where they took place, who did the killing and who was killed. It's so Black Lives Matter. Like this, uh, this impulse to sort of document acts of violence by the state motivated by race speaks to me to this last few years we've been living through where we've had to revisit the role of the police, the role of the state and the role of racism. And in fact, in 2013 in Chicago, a small group of activists who affiliated themselves with Black Lives Matter started a group called We Charge Genocide. And they were trying to document all the, all the racist crimes of the Chicago Police Department, Laquan McDonald being just the most famous example, but there's a long history of that. I found that, that echo of history really, really fascinating. It made it, for me, it made our book seem really relevant to the moment that we're in. Um, so I guess that would be my answer. I don't know. Chris may have his own thoughts. Yeah, Chris, anything you'd add? That's that's you no. Know, he he. Uh, that's I would I would agree. And I, and I think that's that's something that's emerged from this conversation. That's um, that I think it addresses um, one of Jefferson your earlier questions too. It's like what's the word? What's the name that folks organize against fascism under? And I think kind of Bill named it. It's like it, we already saw it. It's Black Lives Matter. <laughs> that, that was the, the, the rubric under which a lot of folks who are not just um, African-American kind of came out in the streets to oppose, you know, Trumpism and to not only just Trumpism, but just the whole racial, racial ferment in the country, you know, so that's, that's when that movement really exploded. Any lessons from then or elsewhere 
about how to have smarter, more persuasive movements. That's, and, and that may be, and that may be the project I'm most interested in, right? Is how do we, how do we have people who want to embrace democracy with a, uh, with a root of morality uh, and make the world a little bit better rather than a lot worse? Uh, how, how are they given tools so they can do that best? How can we work together better than we can work apart? Uh, is there, and even try to tie in together some of the previous themes, which are, which are sort of self-policing, right? How do we, how do we make sure you, they'll use the word discipline. Uh, how do we, how do we get it so that we have smarter and smarter movements that are harder to derail, harder to ignore, yes, but also harder, harder to infiltrate or to marginalize or to cast inaptly as the bad guy themselves? Well, this may sound like a really pedestrian answer, but I actually think education is really important. Um, most people in this country, I, I, I went to public schools for you know all my life. I didn't know there was a giant fascist rally at Madison Square Garden in 1939 and 20,000 people in the, were rallied under swastikas in the middle of New York City. I didn't know that socialists were out in the streets of New York outside the garden fighting it. Um, I think that we don't even to this day talk enough about the history of white supremacy in this country. Um, Timothy McVeigh was just not against government. He was an anti-Semite. He was a white supremacist. And somehow that piece of the story kind of got lost in the shuffle. And I feel like teaching people to be woke, <laughs> to use kind of a current phrase, means beginning at early, early stages of their lives as, as people who live in the United States to talk more openly and honestly about these histories. So we're not caught by surprise, right? So we recognize something like Trumpism when it surfaces, we're more ready for it. Um, and maybe we feel a little, maybe it would be easier for us to find uh, allies if everybody in fourth grade went through the same little unit unit on white supremacy, including the white, including the white kids who are, who are probably giving me the last ones to understand it. If you grow up non-white in this country, you kind of figure out white supremacy on your own, I think. But I really feel like the majority, and this is part of what I think anti-fascism should be, it needs to become a majority sen sensibility. But in order for it to become a majority sensibility, you actually have to educate people about the tradition of fascism and the tradition of anti-fascism. If we're gonna think about movements, I'd just add on to that too. I think the nuts and bolts are really important. I mean, I, I'm just thinking of a, an organization I saw here in Connecticut, <clears throat> Connecticut Students for a Dream that were um, mostly undocumented students kind of rallying around, um, you know, for resources and, and laws benefiting undocumented folks in our state. And I think one of the things I, I kind of that like sitting in on some of their meetings kind of drove home is that just nuts and bolts being able to run a meeting effectively a good inclusive meeting um, basically having realistic goals that you can achieve in your state in your place where you live and so that your members could take part in something and win something palpable and they can go home and say like oh we did x and we got y that's not always going to happen but um you know that that I was a little concerned for a little while that like, okay, it's been a long time since the 60s and the 30s and 
can do are people trained to just organize? Do people do do people have the skills to organize? And I think I just watching this group here, I would in with all young people, I was heartened by the fact that yes, there are some folks out there and young folks who are doing really good work, who can run meetings, who can do things, who can get things done. Um, and just find those folks and just ask them lots of questions and watch how they operate. <laughs> and let's finish by returning to the why. Uh, while the world hasn't maybe seen uh, a full on true fascist state since 1945, well, you might, you might disagree with that. You might offer an example to challenge that. Uh, but the, that would only strengthen what I'm about to say. The latest Freedom House report is that democracy is currently on a global decline. Uh, that are, are you concerned that there might be a perfect storm or at least a gathering storm of conditions allowing for a truly fascist state to emerge? Uh, that a fever that may not have been broken merely because of an American election in 2020 and its ability to actually transition a presidency. Uh, how, do, how are you feeling about, or what are your ref final reflections on the state of democracy globally? And you might finish that with, therefore we must do what? And maybe it's just read your book. Um, I, we are, I think we argue in the book, and this would be a perspective that Chris, Chris and I, I think share, that Historically, fascism arises, arises out of some kind of capitalist crisis. It was true in Germany, it was true in Italy, it was true in Spain. Um, we've, the, 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 the planet has been in kind of capitalist crisis, parts of it for a long time, but more parts of it since around 2007 and eight, when we saw the so-called advanced industrial states um, collapse under real estate bubbles, stock market yeah. crashes, loss of pensions, investments, et cetera. The middle class in this country has been falling, okay? Um, we've seen precarity in the workforce. We've seen de-unionization. We've seen falling real wages. We've seen tremendous economic polarization. I mean, that's what Occupy was about, right? It was identifying this polarization. Those are, those are classic conditions for the rise of fascism. And I don't think it should shock us that we got some version of it in the United States in the last couple of years. Um, I, wa I wanna say, I don't wanna fall into the trap of thinking that you know Trump supporters were all like poor and working class people. I don't think that's true. Although it's discouraging that you know apparently about 40% of union households voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. But the Atlantic Monthly just ran an article uh, analyzing about 200 people who were arrested at the Capitol, about 40% of them were small business owners. That's what Marx has called the petty bourgeoisie. Well, what are they pissed off about? Well, they're pissed off that the American economy is not doing what they want it to do, and they're looking to scapegoat somebody, right? So you don't wanna be economically reductionist when you talk about the conditions for fascism, but I don't think you can ignore what the, what the the conditions that have obtained in this country for the last 10, 15 years especially have produced resentments, cross-class resentments that have hitched themselves to reactionary, racist, nationalist ideas. That's kind of a pattern that we're familiar with if we study fascism. Chris, any final word from you? 
Yeah, I mean, you would ask about, I mean, like, are the conditions still there? And is there a perfect storm? And yes, I mean, on the, on the most rudimentary level, as long as you have um, white supremacy and militarism and, you know, kind of patriarchy um, and the culture and that's deeply rooted, you're always going to have the soil out of which fascist movements can grow. But layered on top of that, yes, there are additional conditions too. Um, one of the things, you know, that in the past uh, has really made um, fascist movements kind of grow um, exponentially is a powerful left, right? Um, keep in mind, you know, this is going back to a good discussion we had earlier, you know, right after, um, you know, the, the January 6th, the National Association of Manufacturers um, put out a statement calling for the impeachment of Trump. Um, now, if in big business in Italy and Germany before fascists took power, were not doing that. And why were they not doing that? In part, because they had massive socialist and communist movements. Um, and so one of the kind of the perfect storm conditions, and this is something to watch out for, is a strong left, right? And because fascists, keep in mind fascists, when we look at the historical fascist regimes, even a lot of kind of um, Latin American regimes too, um, right-wing authoritarianism, fascism, whatever we want to call it, they never win after, they, they never come to power after they win an election, they come to power after they lose an election or if they're kind of going in the polls. And keep in mind, it only takes about 35% of the population to support a fascist movement for them to actually take power. They don't usually, but um, you know, be that as it may, that's, so we've always got the conditions. I would look out for a strong left. I would watch out for people coming out of the military who are read as a person of honor, right? Um, a, maybe a man of honor who's very disciplined to um, whose whole life is kind of in a militarist framework. Um, I would look out for that as well. But if, Trump, if Trump had the, if Trump had the, uh, the CV of Charles de Gaulle, the, the right. uh, might've been an, in, we might, to use Bill's phrase, be having a different conversation. Exactly. But don't forget, like Bill said, don't forget the resistance. I mean, yes, they tend to come about as a, as a result of the strong left, but they usually don't take power. They usually go down in flames, these movements. Um, they, they can do a lot of damage along the way, but they usually lose. Um, and I would be way more depressed if I was in um, say the Philippines or Hungary, where the vast majority of the population supports the authoritarian leader, right? That's not where we're at. And we're at, or in France, where it's the younger people who tend to support the far right. Um, in the United States, it's, you know, the younger people are, are, are not so inclined as they grow older, who knows, but it's a good sign that they're not right now supporting kind of fascism. So um, yeah, I think we've got a lot. I, I, I think there, there is a left ferment in the country. I think the left is more on the upswing. I have student. I work with students. Young people seem to be more to the left than I've ever seen them before, even out here. And so I'm. I'm not. I'm. I'm cautious, but I'm not depressed. Thank you both again, and thank you for your time. Again, we've been talking to Bill Mullen and Christopher Viles. They're the authors of the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader. Really appreciate both your time. Hope we have a chance to connect again. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, and Jefferson. Thank, and thanks for being democracy nerds. <laughs> Take care. All right, gentlemen. Hey, hey. Democracy Nerd is produced and recorded in X-Ray Studios. Thanks to producer Kyle Curtis and Chase Spross. Thanks also to Kat Buckley for the graphics. I'm Jefferson Smith. We're at the beginning of this. Please subscribe and give us a five-star review, even if it is only in the hopes that we eventually earn it. Help spread the word.
You can check out X-Ray's podcast page, xraypod.com, for past Democracy Nerd episodes and other X-Ray offerings. Thank you, Democracy Nerd.